Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. John chapter 9, verse 12 to 27. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. What, crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself he went to the place called Place of the Skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side, with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that many people could read it. Then the leading priest objected and said to Pilate, change it from the king of the Jews to he said I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dies for it. This fulfilled the scriptures that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that, is, so that is what they did. Standing near the cross were, were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the, the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son, And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am first thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. They soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thank you, Father God, for today. Thank you, Lord, that we can remember you. Thank you, Jesus, that we have your spirit that is pointing us to the truth. And I pray, Lord, that as Craig speaks to us this morning, that you would reignite our hearts to see you and to discover, discover you in a brand new, fresh way again. Lord, that we can celebrate you and give you the glory that you deserve. Amen. We'll get there. 
I was going to use the headset microphone, but unfortunately my head is too big. <laughs> um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Craig, and I'm the community engagement leader here at Westminster Chapel. If it's your first time with us today, you're very welcome. It's a real privilege and a joy to be speaking to you on this Good Friday morning. And um, if you have your Bibles or your phones, um, please do open them to John 19. And we'll be looking at chapter 19, verses 12 onwards. Um, okay. So as we delve into our message uh, this morning, what I'd really like is to enlist your help. What I want us to do is to read verses 12 to 16 out loud. And as we do that, I would like you to be listening to a word that is repeated four times. I want us to do that for a couple of reasons. One, it will help us to see John's purpose in writing. And two, it will aid us in discovering the theme of the passage ensuring that we're on the right track. So you ready? Let's go. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. What is it? You lot are clever. That's right, it's king. And in chapters 18 and 19, John uses the phrase king and kingdom 14 times in relation to Jesus. And in fact, the entire gospel of John is packed with kingly allusions and royal imagery. So that's one goal of our exercise achieved. We have discovered the theme. Kingship is the theme of our text. But what about John's purpose in writing, why does he write in the way that he does? What does he want us to see? Well, I believe that Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, unintentionally sums it up perfectly in verse 14 when speaking of Jesus. He says, here is your king. And in verse 19, Pilate even prepares a sign to fasten to the cross of Jesus, which says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So, John writes to show us that this man, with a crown of thorns on his head, with a purple robe on his back, with cuts all over his body, standing on trial, was no ordinary man, but that this man is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's appointed King, who even in his suffering and death reigns as Lord of all. John's purpose is to capture and enrapture our hearts with a vision of Jesus as the crucified king. 
And so this Good Friday, we're going to have the joy of beholding the king in three ways. Through his rejection, his death, and his victory. So let's open our hearts and minds to behold the glories of God's appointed king. Firstly, the rejection of the king. As we read verses 12 to 16, did you notice anything ironic about the situation? Pilate clearly didn't. Why don't we think about that for a minute? When Pilate brings Jesus out before the people and says, here is your king, what's he doing? He is scorning Jesus and mocking the people. But what he cannot see is that his mocking unintentionally serves as a proclamation of truth. Jesus really is the king. And little did Pilate know that very soon Jesus would be seated on a heavenly throne and be worshipped and adored, not just by the Jews, but by people from every nation. And if you think that is ironic, check this out. Another thing that Pilate failed to realize was this. In standing in judgment over Jesus, who was he standing in judgment over? Only the one who has been appointed as the judge of the whole earth. And little did Pilate know that one day the tables would be turned and Pilate would face the fate of us all. He would be under Jesus' judgment. Can you see the irony of the situation? But it's not just the irony that I want us to see this morning. I also want you to notice the reaction of the people. How do the people respond to Pilate's proclamation of Jesus as their king? Let's read verses 14 and 15. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. Verse 15. And they bow the knee before Jesus and worship him as king of kings and lord of lords. Should we try that again? But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? The people react to Jesus in exactly the way that John said they would. In the beginning of his gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus came to his own people and even they rejected him. They reject him. Now, has anybody heard the phrase, history repeats itself? Some say that it's not always true, but this isn't the first time that the Bible speaks about a king rejected by his people. You see, a long time before Jesus is rejected as king, God's people reject God as their king. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. God was a perfect king who reigned over his people with perfect justice. He met all of their needs and he had never done his people any wrong. But despite all of that, it still wasn't good enough. They still wasn't satisfied and they demanded a different king. And here in John 19, the issue resurfaces. You see, the people had their own idea of what their king should be like. And Jesus wouldn't squeeze himself into that mold. And when Pilate presents him to the people as their king, what do they shout? Crucify him! And once again, God is rejected as king. But I don't want us to just look at these two episodes and think, how could they do that? Are they crazy? Are they evil, stupid people? Because the reality is, 
God is not just rejected as king in the pages of the Bible. Far from it. History repeats itself in every human heart. You see, we all carry a tendency to reject God as our king. We are all prone to setting up our own kings on the thrones of our hearts. Here's some questions. Are you rejecting God as your king? Who or what is enthroned as king in your life? Are you under the dominion of pleasure? Do you pay homage to the throne of money? Are you a loyal subject of power? Or have you fallen for the narrative of this age which encourages you to put yourself on the throne? Have you fallen for the lie that you can be your own king? Please hear this vital truth. If you bow before the throne of anything or anyone but the throne of God, then you are bowing before a false king who at best will disappoint you and at worst will enslave you and totally destroy you. So what will it be? Will you be like the people that shouted, take him away, crucify him? Demand a different king than God? Will you reject Jesus as your king? Will you let false kings dominate your life? Listen to me. Jesus is the only king who will never disappoint you. Jesus is the only king who will never let you down. Jesus being your king, guess what? You will never be destroyed. Jesus, the crucified king, gives to his subjects true freedom, unspeakable joy, and life forevermore. Secondly, the death of the king. John uses four words to describe the crucifixion of the king of kings. Notice verse 18. There they crucified him. John's four-word summary shows us that his focus isn't on recounting the details of Jesus' physical sufferings, but to help us to understand what Jesus is saying and doing as he is crucified. And there are many things that we could say about that, but for now, let's just focus on one thing that Jesus is doing in his suffering and death. Notice verse 24. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 28, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled. And verse 36, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now I said at the beginning that when we look for repeated phrases in a text, it helps us to ensure that we're on the right track when we're trying to interpret the Bible. And here it's clear that John really wants us to see something uh, important because he repeats the phrase three times. That scripture might be fulfilled. So, what is John getting at with this repeated phrase? John wants us to see that the events of Jesus' crucifixion, as tragic as they are, did not take God by surprise. Jesus is not a passive victim of horrendous circumstances. John wants to make it very clear that what is happening to Jesus was all foretold by God and the fulfillment of his plan. What do I mean? As Christians, we believe that scripture is God's word. Perfect 
without error, holding total authority over our lives. And in the part of scripture that we call the Old Testament, God makes specific promises. Somebody say promises. To his people. Over and over again, God promised the coming of a king. And God said that this king would have an everlasting kingdom, that this king would establish peace, that this king would reign righteously, and that this king would rescue and deliver his people from sin and death. And for centuries, God's people clung to these promises concerning the king. The promises of God gave them hope when they were exiled, comfort in times of pain, and peace during chaos. And then one day, there was no room at an inn. And a baby was born in Bethlehem. God's promise was fulfilled. The king had come. Here he was, they thought. The one that our people have looked for for generations. Our great king here to liberate us from the tyranny of the Romans. Here to crush our enemies, to heal our land, to set us free, to reign as king of Israel. And Jesus' disciples became absolutely convinced that he was the answer to the promises of God. But they got it slightly twisted about how his kingship should look. But still they left everything behind and followed him. And on Good Friday, their dreams were shattered. You might know how that feels. Jesus was dead. But how could this be? Hadn't he come to crush the enemies of God? Wouldn't his glory be seen in liberating Israel? But here he was seemingly killed by the Romans. Can you imagine the hopelessness and the despair that they had felt in that moment? Hope gone. God's promised king was dead and defeated. Or so they thought. Because we know that the story doesn't end there. For three days later, Jesus would rise triumphantly from the grave and he would do something that would help his disciples to see the truth about his kingship. He would help them to understand that he was a king who came not to slay, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. And that he would help them to see that he was a king whose glory would not be seen in victory on a battlefield, but in suffering and in dying for the sins of the world. So what would he do? What would King Jesus do about his shattered and distraught disciples? How would he inspire hope back into the hopeless? Not necessarily in the way that you might think. Luke 24 tells us that two of Jesus' disciples are walking along a road from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. Jesus appears post-resurrection, but they are kept from recognizing him, and he begins to walk with them. And do you know what he does? He gives them a Bible study. He takes them on a journey through the Old Testament. He shows them how every event in his life and death was no accident, was no defeat, but a part of God's plan and the fulfillment of his promises. Has anybody ever had a eureka moment when it feels like suddenly the lights have come on? 
that dramatic moment of realization when finally, seemingly out of nowhere, you've got the answer to your problem. I'm sure that's what it must have felt like for those two as they walked with Jesus and as he opened the scriptures and showed their true meaning. Can you imagine the joy and the awe and the wonder that filled their hearts as they realized the true meaning behind the death of their king as it finally clicked in the midst of their traumatized minds that Jesus' death was not a tragic end to a life well lived but the fulfillment of God's plan. That's why John emphasizes the phrase that scripture might be fulfilled. He wants us to have an Emmaus Road moment. He wants our hearts to burn within us as our eyes are opened to this. That the evil actions of men never get the final say. That the death of Jesus reveals the kingship of Jesus. That Jesus is sovereign over every circumstance. That Jesus is reigning even in his death. That Jesus is the crucified king who even in his crucifixion is the fulfiller of scripture and the answer to the promises of God. I've got another question for you. How's your hope level right now? Maybe you feel a bit hopeless. Maybe you feel a bit like how Jesus' followers first felt when they found out that he was dead. Have your dreams been shattered? Do you feel crushed by the weight of your circumstances? Well, John wants you to know that whatever you've done in your past, there is hope. However crazy your present currently feels, there is hope. Whatever the future may bring, there is hope. Jesus, the crucified king, is the fulfillment of the promises of God. And God has promised us this, that there is a day coming... When King Jesus will return, when he will set up his kingdom in a new heaven and earth where there will be no more death, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain. And if Jesus is your king, you will live with him under a reign of perfect justice, experiencing nothing but joy, life and peace forevermore. Finally, we see the victory of the king. Read with me verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. These three words change absolutely everything about the way that we relate to God. Until I was 21, I felt like I needed to earn the approval of some distant and unapproachable God. I thought that I needed to climb some kind of ladder to jump through hoops to live a perfect life in order to have any hope of salvation. It was absolutely exhausting. And I knew deep down that I could never measure up. But that was until I heard the good news of a crucified king. You see, the heart of the Christian message is this. Jesus Christ died for your sins. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, it was not a sigh of relief or a sign of defeat. It was a shout of victory. 
It was King Jesus proclaiming that he had completed the mission that he came to do, to die for the sin of the world, to take our punishment, to reconcile humanity back to God. We call the victory of Jesus the good news. Because unlike any other religion in the world, we have a message of grace and salvation. Not through our works, not through our good deeds, but through Jesus' victory. The victory of Jesus means that you don't have to climb some kind of metaphorical, spiritual ladder. But that God has climbed down that ladder for you. The victory of Jesus means that you do not have to earn your way to God. Because there is only one person who could ever meet God's perfect standard of righteousness. And that's Jesus Christ. And he's done it all. He's finished the work. He has taken your sin. He has given you his righteousness. You can stand before God, righteous, forgiven, forever accepted, all because of what Jesus has done. Listen, there are two types of messages out there. One is very bad news. It is the message of this world. And it demands that you do, do, do. That you earn, earn, earn. That you work harder, harder, harder. The second message is the best message of all. It is the shout of a crucified king who triumphantly declares, done, done, done. And the victory of Jesus is also good news because through his death on the cross, Jesus has overcome the problem common to us all. The problem of death. Through his death and resurrection, death has been conquered. Jesus has fulfilled God's promise to rescue his people from the power of the grave and to redeem them from death. Through the triumph of the crucified king, eternal life is yours. And so we've seen, we've heard the story, the true story of the rejected, the crucified, and the victorious king. But what now? John makes it very clear in verse 35 that his purpose in writing about the suffering and death of Jesus is so that you feel all warm and gooey inside and then go on your merry way. What does he say? He says, I testify that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the crucified king. In every season of life, in every difficult circumstance, believe that Jesus is king. In suffering, when facing death, when it feels like the whole world is against us, believe that Jesus is king. And even in the good times, remember that every blessing that you receive comes from the rejected, the crucified, and the victorious king. Now there's a coronation coming up in a few weeks. King Charles, I encourage you to enjoy it. Um, but make sure that you use that occasion as a reminder of a greater king. 
A king who was crowned with thorns, who conquered death, and who reigns over every nation. So celebrate the coronation of King Charles. But don't forget that above him stands the King of Kings who loves you and has given everything for you. Remember King Jesus who died for your sins and rose again to bring you eternal life. If Mike and Gus could come up. As we close, I would like to lead us in a, in a short response. There's two groups of people that I want to address. Firstly, my fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, my brothers and sisters. And secondly, I will address those who do not yet have Jesus as their king. So as I was preparing this message, God showed me some areas in my own life that I have not fully surrendered to him. I feel a deep conviction in my heart to confess and to repent of these things and to lay them all down at the feet of our crucified king. And as I was reflecting on this, I realized that there might be some of you, my brothers and sisters, who are also struggling with areas in your life that you have not fully surrendered to the king. Maybe there are things that you are holding on to that you're unwilling to let go of or that there are areas in which you are rebelling against his will. Jesus is calling us today to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to reveal where we need to surrender more fully to him. He is inviting us to confess our sins and to lay them all at his feet. So I urge you today, take some time during this service to seek the king with all of your heart. Ask him to show you where you need to surrender more fully to him. And then allow his love and his grace to wash over you as you confess your sins and surrender it all to Jesus. And then to those of you who haven't claimed Jesus as your king, I commend him to you today. He is the only king that will ever die for you. He loves you and his open arms are an invitation to come and to be part of his family. Jesus said, whoever comes to me I will never turn them away. So, if you would like to claim Jesus as your king, I invite you to join me in praying this prayer. And then I would encourage you to come and speak to one of us afterwards and let us know that you've made that decision so that we can help you and support you on your journey with the king. So would you pray with me these words? Jesus, I surrender to you as my king. Please come into my life and make me new. From this day forwards, I want to live with you, Jesus, as my king. For you died and you rose for me. And through your blood, I am forgiven. And I have received eternal life.
Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.